0: Thanks so much for being here tonight at Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I am really glad to be here with you on this uh, summer night. I think it's the first night all week that we haven't gone into uh, the evening hour with... uh, incredible rains which we're all thankful for but it's nice to see a little sunshine isn't it i hope you're having a great summer have you had time so far to just relax a little bit maybe i see some no's and some yeses maybe read a good book or um, take a trip or anticipate uh, a trip that's Uh, Some of the things that um, I think about when I think of summer, I always think of reading a a good book in the summer. How many of you are readers and do that beach reading thing? Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Um, How many of you have ever had a trip where you thought in the middle of it, a vacation, this isn't what I signed up for? I have a... (laughs) Yeah, I see. All of you have had that trip, haven't you? All of you have had that trip. I have a great friend who took a cruise for her 60th birthday last year, and it ended up being on that ship that was stranded in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, she um, has great stories about sleeping out on the deck, and she's a nurse, so she organized you know, everyone into triage things. But um, at the end, she said, why did my birthday turn out like this? This wasn't exactly what I expected. And uh, years and years ago, I had one of those trips, I took my three little boys on a a short beach trip down to Padre Island and I actually took one of my nephews with me so I had these four little boys and we had a great few days and as I was packing the car to come back home that morning I thought I don't feel very good I, I think I'm coming down with something so I need to throw these little boys in the car and get home before I get really sick well with every mile I drove, I got sicker and sicker, and I ended up in Austin having an appendectomy at 2 in the morning with these four little boys in tow. And I can certainly tell you that I laid in that hospital bed and thought, why did my beach trip turn out to be a hospital stay? This wasn't exactly what I signed up for. Tonight we're going to take uh, another look at Jesus's words from the cross before his death and we're going to see the physical agony he endures we're going to see the spiritual agony he endures and we're going to ponder the truth that jesus went to the cross um, selflessly and sacrificially um, and in full submission full submission he may not have fully known the depth of the anguish he was going to experience but he's not surprised by it Um, Before we begin, I want to just uh, take a look at where we are in that um, monumental day that he is on the cross. You've got a cream-colored sheet, I believe, on your table that you may want to take out and take a look at. We've looked at it every week. As you can see, Jesus arrived at Golgotha at 9 in the morning and was crucified. Now, this is actually the culmination of a long night that he has experienced the night before. You know, he had the... um, Uh, Passover supper with his disciples he went to the garden of Gethsemane to pray that is where he was arrested then he was taken to the high priest Caiaphas um, for a bogus trial that turned out to be rigged from the start then he was turned over to Pilate Uh, Pilate turns him over to soldiers who flog him unmercifully Um, And that has all happened before he arrives at Golgotha at 9 that morning on your sheet. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about the period of time that happens between 9 in the morning and noon as Jesus hangs on the cross. He was vilified by everyone around him. He was mocked and um, spit on, and yet he speaks Some amazing words during those three hours. Uh, All we have seen him do in those three hours where he is cruelly mistreated is think about others. We have seen him be the perfect example of all of his teaching for the last three years. He exemplifies it in those three hours on the cross. You know, in the first week that Lynn was here with us, she told us that the cross was Jesus' greatest pulpit. And she said that because it was on the cross that he had the opportunity to demonstrate and live out Every single teaching that he had had in the three years of his ministry. On that first three hours on the cross, he demonstrates an unequaled, selfless spirit as he speaks a word of forgiveness to the very people that have nailed him up there. As he speaks a word of salvation to the thief and the crook that's next to him on the cross. And as he speaks a word of devotion to his mother that stands at his feet weeping and not understanding what's really happening here you know most teachers hope they can be an example and a role model for their students i don't know how many of you in here are teachers tonight but i know that's what you want is to be that example uh, but jesus outdoes every other teacher in eternity in these 3 hours on the cross as he lives out life lessons that are other focused from that cross Um, A few years ago, I read a book by Christian counselor Larry Crabb. And he talked about a concept that he saw in his counseling practice a lot that he called justified self-centeredness. And what he saw in his um, counseling practice was that as believers, we almost always know the way to live, but we don't always live that out, do we? And then when we don't live it out, we rely on this justified self-centeredness where we say if you knew how hard my life was You wouldn't expect me to do any better than what I'm doing right now. Well, Jesus, in these first three hours on the cross, never once says, If you knew how hard it was up here, you wouldn't expect me to act any better. He behaves in a perfect example of everything he's wanted us to learn. So with that in mind, those first three hours set aside, they're in the light, where we see Jesus exemplify every one of his teaching We want to look at the rest of the day that is in store for the Savior. Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 27. And we are going to read a couple of verses there. Verse 45 in Matthew 27 says this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, up until now, on that hill on Golgotha and in Jerusalem, it's been a normal day for everyone except, of course, our Lord Jesus. But at the noon hour, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m., so when it says the sixth hour, that means 12 noon. At the noon hour, without warning, the sky suddenly becomes Um, completely dark now there have been some feeble attempts throughout history to explain away this darkness as some sort of natural coincidental occurrence such as a sandstorm or even a thunderstorm but that's not what this is this is a supernatural darkness a supernatural event it was an abnormally complete darkening of the sky there was no moon No stars, no sun. It could not have been a random solar eclipse because this is the Passover. And the Passover is always held at the full moon. And if you understand anything about astronomy and eclipses, you know that you can't have a solar eclipse and a full moon at the same time. There are also uh, several historical accounts by ancient writers that describe uh, this unnatural darkening of the sky on this day. Dionysius in Egypt, all the way in Egypt, wrote this of this midday darkening. He wrote, Either the God of nature is suffering or the machine of the world is tumbling into ruin. And, you know, actually, he's more right than he probably knew. Um, because a look at the scriptures, if you look at the scriptures, God uses darkness throughout the scriptures as a sign of judgment and tra- tragedy. Look at Amos 8 with me on your verse sheet. This is um, the prophet Amos predicting God's judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel if they don't turn from their... Uh, idol worshiping ways, and Amos eight nine says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. And look at Exodus ten twenty one on your verse sheet with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. In Moses' time, this three days of darkness was God's judgment on Egypt, because they would not let his people go. But here at the cross, these three hours of supernatural darkness, are God's judgment not only on Israel and his people for rejecting the Messiah... But it is also a supernatural darkness in judgment of our Lord Jesus Himself. And that is because it is here in this darkness that Jesus takes on the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And because of that, it is here in this darkness that Jesus becomes the object of God's judgment on mankind's sin. It is here in this supernatural darkness that he it, Jesus is the offering for sin and the propitiation for sin that a holy God demands. Look at John 1:29 on your verse sheet. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. This is John the Baptist and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." 2 Corinthians 5:21 just under that says, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And First Peter 2.24 says, He himself, meaning our Lord Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." If our Lord Jesus is to be our sin substitute, our atoning sacrifice that restores our relationship with our God, then he must take every sinner's place before a holy God and be judged for every sin of every sinner. Pretty phenomenal um, concept, isn't it? In the darkness... Every sin from every age is placed squarely on our Lord Jesus. It's pretty hard to imagine our sinless Lord Jesus with a guilty verdict. But here with this darkness that surrounds him, he is proclaimed guilty of every crime. Now there's no way to measure the anguish that he must have felt during these three hours. And up until now, he's not spoken of his suffering as I shared with you earlier. We have to remember that he's already been flogged He's already been nailed to the cross. He's already spent three hours or more trying to breathe on that cross. But the only words he's spoken thus far have been words of forgiveness and salvation and devotion. But as this three hours of darkness, where he has borne the sins of the world, comes to the end, he finally cries out. And the words he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? have a lot to teach us here tonight. So we need to look at him pretty carefully. And the first thing that I think we learn from examining just this phrase that he cries out in his spiritual agony is that Jesus is feeling the extreme grief of God's desertion. The extreme grief of God's desertion. As Jesus becomes our sin substitute, his just and holy Father, who is perfect for the first time in all eternity God the Father turns his face from God the Son. Now, I have no way to explain to you tonight how that really transpired. But I can tell you without hesitation that it did transpire. God the Father has forsaken God the Son. And that is what Jesus is experiencing here in the darkness. Um, Jesus... Jesus's call here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, marks the lowest point of the cross for our Lord Jesus. He's endured all his physical pain in silence, but when his God, God the Father, withdraws his presence in judgment of sin, that's when he cries out in pain and agony. Now, if you think about... Jesus' life, you know that being forsaken is actually not something that's new to Jesus. He's actually been forsaken for the whole three years of his public ministry. He was forsaken by the nation of Israel as they turned away from him time and time again. He's been forsaken by the temple leaders, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin. He's been forsaken by the high priest just the night before in the bogus trial. In the last 24 hours, if you think about it, he was forsaken by Judas, wasn't he? He was forsaken by every one of his disciples, including his beloved Peter. But we don't hear him call out from the cross, why has the nation of Israel forsaken me? And we don't hear him call out from the cross, why did did Judas portray me? Why did Peter walk away and not look back? His spiritual anguish... Only culminates in the absence of God the Father. Now, what makes this even more poignant to me is the fact that this is a remarkable desertion that Jesus is experiencing because our God is not a God that leaves his people, is he? Our God is not a God that leaves us in our moments, our worst moments. If you think about David in Psalm 23, what does David say in Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. David knows. God's presence in his worst moments in the book of Daniel if you know the story of uh, Daniel's three friends uh, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar threw them in the fiery furnace Uh, what did the guards report that there was someone in that fiery furnace walking around with them. Um, they were not forsaken by their God in their worst moment. In fact, if you've ever read um, the book of Martyrs and you read about the incredible stories of people that have been martyred for God throughout the ages, every single one of them says, uh, their testimony is, is that they felt God's presence up until they breathed their very last And certainly if we take a look at the life of our Lord Jesus, it is going to testify to God's incredible presence with him, his constant presence. Look at John 16 on your verse sheet. It says, Behold, this is Jesus talking, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And in John seventeen, when Jesus prays this incredible prayer before he goes to the cross, he talks about the oneness that he and God the Father have in in john seventeen twenty one he says um, that and he 's talking about um, the believers, he says that they may be, uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Jesus had had an incredible, constant relationship with God the Father up until this moment. But in the darkness, on the cross, with all the sins of the earth laid on him, there was no comfort from God the Father. There was no acknowledgement of his pain. There was no communication with the beloved Father he had never been separated from. A holy God cannot be in the presence of sin even when that sin is laid purposefully on his only sinless son. So it's in this darkness that Jesus suffers his greatest agony, spiritual agony, for judgment of sin and separation from God the Father. Now even as we try to get our minds around the truth that God the Father has had to turn away from his one and only son, there's some other great things that we can learn from Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can see that even though a holy and just God has forsaken the one who bears the sins of the world... Um, we can see that Jesus has not forsaken God the Father, has he? The words that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are actually from Psalm 22. I hope you had a chance to read that in your time around the table. Look at David's words from Psalm 22 on your verse sheet with me. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. In Jesus' darkest hours, it's amazing to me to see that the cry that comes from Jesus' lips comes straight from God's word. It comes straight from God's Word and not only shows his great love for the Holy Scriptures, which he obviously knows the inspired Word of God um, because he is the Word of God, but most who study this passage believe that Jesus was actually meditating on the whole of Psalm 22 during that darkness. Um, And it shows that his outcry of pain is not against God But his outcry of pain, just like God, just like David, is to God. Jesus is calling out to God. Our Lord Jesus was just overcome and delirious with pain. He's alone as no other human being has ever been alone before. But in his faith, he still clings to God the Father using David's very personal words. My God, my God. Even as God's complete wrath, complete wrath is poured out on our Lord Jesus, Jesus holds tight to God the Father in his heart of hearts and he spends that time as the wrath of God is poured out on him meditating on the scriptures. There's another important lesson for us to learn here as Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Jesus does not call out, Why have you forsaken me from David's psalm? Because Jesus is looking for answers. Jesus already knows the answer to the why question. He knows why God has forsaken him. You know, if we had time, we could spend some time in a passage I love, which is Jesus' prayer in John 17, that he prays just before his arrest. And he spends time praying and talking to God the Father about the fact that he knows that God has sent him into the world with a mission to do, with work to do. And he knows that that work is almost accomplished and that the hour has come for him to return to the Father father. Jesus knows what his mission is here. And if we look at the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus once more went to pray and spend time with the father before his arrest, um we see that as he talks with the father about his he talks with the father about the wrath that is going to be poured out on him. Jesus knows what's coming. He even asked God the father to take that cup of wrath away from him, to take that suffering if it was possible but even as he asks that he willingly submits to the will of God the Father Jesus knows what he's agreed to in the garden of Gethsemane look at Matthew 26:38 uh, on your verse sheet and then he said to them meaning the disciples my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch with me And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. As he hangs in the darkness, Jesus knows the why. He knows the cup of God's wrath that has been Handed to his hands, he knows that he's agreed to submit to the will of the Father. But in quoting Psalm 22 aloud for um, all of us to hear, I think Jesus does a really profound thing here. He puts that why question. He puts that why question into our hearts and our minds as we stood at the stand at the foot of the cross. The why question is for us. Why? Has God forsaken Jesus? That's what we have to answer as we ponder his death as our sin substitute. We have to answer um, how he paid the price for our sins. Why has God forsaken Jesus? It's for us. That's why he's forsaken Jesus. And when we find the answer to that why question that Jesus has borne all of our sins on his own body on the cross and has borne Um, the wrath of God because of it, Um, when we answer that question ourselves and come to believe that's exactly what happened on that cross, then we find the gift of eternal life. We find the gift of eternal life. Preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon writes that the riddle of God's desertion is solved only by the fact that Jesus loved us and willingly gave himself up for us. Jesus knew the why, even as he called out David's words in Psalm 22. But he wanted us to know the why also. He was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. And um, Chris Tomlin has an amazing song called Amazing Love. It's one of my favorites. And the very first line of that song is... Um, I am forgiven because you were forsaken. And that's the answer to the why question. Now Jesus is... um fifth word from the cross is also a word of agony. But it's not the spiritual agony that we heard him as he cried out David's words from Psalm 22. His fifth word is one of physical agony. And it's actually the shortest utterance that Jesus makes from the cross. In the original language it's only one word even though it's translated um, in our Bibles as I thirst. And it's only recorded in the Gospel of John. John 19 verse 28. It's at the top of your outline Uh, you know and it's ironic that the one that was known as the living water is suffering from such an incredible dehydration that he expresses it in his final moments of life before he dies and what we learn from Jesus in this short expression of pain is that his humanity is real and humble I thirst is just a simple expression of a man who's in pain from a real human thirst. And his simple declaration of pain points to the great truth that he can relate to all of our human suffering because he's experienced it. He's experienced the human suffering that many of us in this room have experienced also. You know, few among us would debate that Jesus was fully God, um, but we can never forget that he was also fully man when he walked on this earth as his incarnate self. In his incarnation, he willingly set aside his deity and he became a man, a true human being, whose body would suffer during this life on earth and it would particularly suffer in agony when he hung on the cross. I want you to look at uh, Philippians 2 with me on your verse sheet. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You know, it's Jesus' willingness to be fully human that allowed him to suffer the pain that all of us suffer in our human bodies. You know, the word of agony that he speaks here um, ironically should bring us some comfort. He's in agony, and his agony should comfort us because when we suffer physically, we can know that he gets it. He gets it. When any of us suffer um, physical pain you know our greatest comfort usually comes from someone else that's experienced it you know if we've had cancer then we get a lot of comfort from talking with people that have also suffered with cancer or with if we have chemo or even if it's simply um in childbirth we've had a long labor and delivery and we get together and talk uh with others who've experienced that when we have suffered physically it helps to look into the eyes of someone else who truly knows doesn't it These words, I thirst, tell us um, that Jesus truly knows what physical suffering is, the suffering of humanity, and he humbly identifies with all of us. And when we suffer physically, we can look into his eyes and know he understands. Now, these simple words, I thirst, also remind us... um, that the human suffering that he faces here on the cross is truly in our place he's truly our substitutionary atonement on that cross suffering physically for us he was the water of life that's what he's described in the scriptures he was the creator of every drop of water on the face of this earth Um, every ocean every river every stream had come forth at his command and yet just for us, he endured the torturous thirst of a dying man that we might never have to endure the thirst of eternal separation from the river of life. When we think about these simple words, I thirst, that he spoke just before he died, we need to think back to the conversation that he had with God the Father in Gethsemane that we just read about, where he said, If you will, Take this cup from me, but not my will, your will. You know, Jesus thirsts in physical agony here on the cross because the cup of our sin has been offered to him and he willingly drank it. He willingly drank it. It was full of God's wrath, that cup that he took hold of, not full of the refreshing water that he could have filled it with. The next time... Each of us grab something to drink, which I do many times during the day. Uh, no matter what it is, I, first thing in the morning I get that cup of coffee and then I go for my Diet Coke and then after I walk at night I get a great big glass of water. I think that every time we grab something to quench our thirst, we need to remember that the water of life thirsted because he drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. He drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. And finally, these words of physical agony, eye thirst reveal how arrogant how arrogant man was to reject and scorn god himself you know throughout his ministry jesus was followed with great crowds of people who wanted to see his miracles you know they all wanted to see what he could do and many of them had an honest desire to discover who he was but many of them simply wanted to see what was happening some of them wanted to be healed Um, They wanted the power of the living God to be displayed for them. Uh, But even as the crowds followed him everywhere, he wasn't always received with um, cheers and applause. Uh, Amazingly, he was scorned and reviled many of the places that he went. Throughout his entire years, three years of ministry, look at Mark um, 3.22 on your verse sheet. And this is early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, it says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, uh, after they'd seen him cast out demons, the, the scribes came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. I mean, here he is healing these poor people that have been suffering from demons. And all the scribes from the temple could say is that he must be possessed by demons himself. Look at Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out after seeing Jesus here and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. And Luke 4, this is Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of towns and brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. Jesus' physical suffering on the cross is just one more proof of the astounding arrogance that we have as mankind that even in the presence of the living God We should behave this way. Spurgeon uh, calls it confirmation of the scriptural testimony with regard to man's natural enmity to God. What Spurgeon points out here is that man has always held himself in pretty high esteem. We think pretty highly of ourselves. We think of ourselves as great, noble creatures who will be able to, just by trying harder, to become better and better. Kind of a spiritual evolution uh, if you might. But the truth is, outside of the faith, man never considers himself to be the broken, sinful creature that he really is, separated from God by his sin. We consider that in the church oftentimes. But out in the world, the world does not see themselves as evil or sinful. Even when God became flesh and walked among us, um, men questioned him and reviled him and condemned him and beat him and eventually crucified him. I thirst is Jesus' simple expression of the culmination of man's complete arrogance and wrong treatment of a gracious and holy God. He has graciously taken on the form of a man to bless us and to save us And we, on the other hand, have used our sinful humanity to reject and scorn him. Look at Romans 5.8 on your verse sheet. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So our Lord Jesus suffers the thirst of a dying man alone on a cross that we might never experience the agony of eternal condemnation. So the word of agony is a lot to take in, isn't it? It's a lot to think about. Um, But it should speak to us. It should speak to us. Um, I had a lot of thoughts in the last weeks as I've worked on this and prayed about it and um, studied it. And the first thing that I think the word of agony needs to say to each one of us is that we can measure the height of his love for us by recognizing the depth of the agony that he experienced. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to the Father, I know the cup of wrath, I know the cup of sorrow is coming, and I submit to you, my Father, willingly. And he took it from the Father's hand, out of submission, but certainly out of love for us. Out of love for us. When we know the depth of of the agony that that cup of wrath held for our Lord Jesus, only then can we realize the depth of his love for us. And when we realize that love, then we should allow nothing to separate us from that love. Uh, not people, not circumstances, not our past, not our present, not our future. Look at Romans eight thirty-five with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our sword. When we understand what he drank in that cup of wrath, we ought to also understand his love for us. The word of agony um, also assures us that being forsaken by God is an experience that only our Lord Jesus had to have. Only our Lord Jesus has to have because. Um, as he carried our sin and received the judgment for our sin, when we accept that and believe that, we can be assured that we will never, as believers in Christ, justified by his blood, be forsaken of God. And if you don't believe that today, uh, I want you to really think about it. He experienced it, so we never have to experience it. Look at Hebrews 13:5. Keep your life free from the love of money... And be content with what you have. For he has said. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. The word of agony. Assures us that this is the truth. The word of agony also gives us. Jesus amazing example. Of clinging to God's word. And to God himself. No matter how much pain we are facing. No matter how much um, agony we are in. The presence of God had definitely left Jesus in his worst moments. His worst moments. But Jesus, in his worst moments, had not left his God. And what a lesson is that for us. In his worst moment, Jesus was not angry. In his worst moment, he was not defeated. In his worst moment, he was not bitter. In his worst moment, he was clinging to God and proclaiming his faith in God. He was teaching us the power and the comfort of God's word in our darkest moments. And finally, the word of agony should impress upon us the seriousness of sin and the damage that it does. We take sin far too lightly in our lives. Sin is the murderer that took the life of the only truly innocent man that ever walked this earth. We have to remember that. And we can never, never invite it into our lives lightly or play with it because it entertains us or makes us happy. Although we are completely forgiven and we can live our life guilt-free, we need to be careful to remember the great price that was paid for our sin. Jesus paid our debt with his agony, with his agony. Pray with me. Father, you are so um, gracious and good. We just um, come before you and express our great love for you. We um, acknowledge indeed that the pain you suffered was real and it was sacrificial and selfless and it was for us. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room tonight that has not taken hold of that truth and received you as their Lord and Savior, that tonight would be the night that they recognize what you did when you drank that cup of wrath. Father, I pray that um, your truth would stay with us, that we would not treat sin lightly, that we would become women that glorify your name Every moment of every day. I thank you for these women. Their love for you. Their hunger for the word. I pray that your hand of favor would be on each one of us. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks ladies.